Micah chapter 5. We're not used to words like this, are we? The tension was thick. The people were anxiously awaiting an invasion from the world power located just a few miles away. This empire had a history of gobbling up smaller nations to add to their lands. The small country was fearful at what being under the control of a foreign nation meant. They knew it. Loss of their national identity, oppressive laws, and loss of religious freedom. The year? 700 B.C. The name of the invading nation? Assyria. The fearful people of Jerusalem were being led by King Hezekiah. And the story went like this. If you take a look at the map on the screen, you will see Samaria, what was called the Northern Kingdom of Israel. 20 years before Micah, it had been gobbled up by the Assyrian Empire invading from the north. This empire wanted Judah, but to get to Jerusalem, it used some strategy. It decided to take a route over in the Philistine area, you see that on the left of the map, and hit the small towns in a circular move on the way up north to Jerusalem. How do we know this? Well, first of all, it's recorded in Scripture in the book of 2 Kings 18 and 19, or the same account is in Isaiah 36 and 37. You can read it sometime. It's quite fascinating. It says that King Sennacherib of Assyria was leading a siege, that is, surrounding the city of Jerusalem that had walls around it, not letting anyone in or anyone out, not letting any food or water or anything come in to kind of starve the people out. He wanted total surrender. And the Bible tells us that Hezekiah was so broken, he appealed to another prophet by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah told him, you need to humble yourself and pray. And pray he did. And 2 Kings 19 says, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. It's not just the Bible that tells us this. Sennacherib himself recorded this on what scholars call the Sennacherib Cylinder. This is what it looks like. It's about 15 inches tall. It's written in what's called cuneiform, the wedge-shaped script. It was discovered about 200 years ago, and once they started, they found actually eight of these scattered throughout what we call today Iraq. And when they translated it, they found 
It's Sennacherib's own record of all the cities that he conquered, how much taxes he demanded of them, and it's kind of like his bragging rights in the royal court. Well, you might say, but the Bible says he lost. Yeah, it does. This is what he recorded. As for Hezekiah, the Judean, who did not submit to my yoke, I shut him up in Jerusalem, his royal city, like a bird in a cage, period. And he moves on to the next city. <laughs> At least he was honest enough not to admit his defeat. God defeated the Assyrian siege, although Micah did not mention that. Verse 1 of Micah reads, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. That's the context for chapter 5. His words, inspired by God and profitable for us today, especially when we're attracted to so many voices with so many dogmatic declarations of what is right and what is wrong. That's why you are here this morning. Not to hear from me, but to hear from God through the prophet Micah. And I've just got to say it, right? There, there's a lot of voices today. There's a lot of prophets with words of warning and words of solutions. And we probably don't call them prophets. We call them bloggers and podcasts and YouTube hosts or newscast anchors or, you know, whatever. And... They're all wanting us to listen or subscribe. And while they may or may not have truth to them, God's voice is true. And his people need to put down all their devices and listen to the holy God who has spoken now and forever. And we've got to resist giving our allegiance even though we don't say it, we kind of give our allegiance to these voices and then let God speak if we want to let him in. May I ask us today to flip that paradigm and let's go back to God who has a voice for us today. God, as we've been looking at through Micah, has been telling Micah for the last four chapters basically two messages. Number one, he's warning God's people about their sin and God's impending judgment, the worst would be exile from the land. God cares about holiness in his people and in the nations. But secondly, he also gives his people hope. Hope in maybe not the exact near term, but hope in their future. And what Micah says and all the other prophets, is that God will one day send his Messiah, his anointed king, and he will eventually judge all sinners and sin and bring true justice and righteousness to earth. Micah urged God's people to walk humbly in hope. And that's what we need. That's what we need to hear, brothers and sisters. This message is for you and for me, and not just today, but for the 
foreseeable future. Are you ready for Micah 5? I want to show you two things that Micah brings out in this chapter. And the first one is where he encourages God's people to put our hope in God's messianic king. Let me read again verses 2 and 3. And you've probably heard verse 2 somewhere before, and I bet it's not in Micah. Here it is again. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Bethlehem. You've heard of it before? I don't mean the city up near Allentown. That one was named after this one. Micah was uh, talking about a little tiny, we would call it like a little village, a hamlet. And it was five miles, it still is, five miles south of Jerusalem on the main road. If you go back from Micah into the rest of the Old Testament, the only time you really see it is when God says to Samuel, you need to replace this loser named Saul, and I've got the new king in mind. So go to Bethlehem. And Samuel goes, and he sees the family, the father of uh, the future king that God had told him, go to the house of Jesse. I'm here to anoint the next king, Jesse, so bring out your boys, right? And one, two, three, he goes along, God says, nope, 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 nope. Jesse, are there any other sons that didn't come? Oh, well, yeah, there's a little kid out in the field keeping the sheep. Bring him in. And God says, yes, he's my man. He's a man after my own heart. That story is the, the foundation of this story here. By the time you get to 700 B.C., we've been 300 years from David. And the kingship has gone from David to Hezekiah, and it will get worse. And God says, I've got to redo this. I've got to do a reset. I've got to go back to Bethlehem again and start over. Still from the family of David because I made a covenant with him that a king would come from his line that will rule the world forever. And there it is on the books. He would come not from Jerusalem, you know, the Washington, D.C. of Israel, no, but from the little town of Bethlehem. I asked Jim if we could sing that today. He said no. <laughs> but you're probably doing it right now in your hearts. So you see, this promise pushes their hope from more military strength to get over this siege to simple faith in God bringing his own anointed king, his Messiah. And this hope endured throughout 
well, really, 700 years, right? It went through the Assyrian Empire to the Babylonian Empire to then the Persian Empire. You know who comes next? The Greek Empire, and now we're after the Old Testament, Alexander the Great. And then the Roman Empire, enter Herod the Great, king of Judea. Now you remember where you heard verse 2, right? In Matthew 2. Jesus was born, Matthew 2 says, in Bethlehem in Judea when Magi came asking King Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Not the thing to say to the reigning king, right? That there's a new king to take his place. So when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they quote Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And you know the rest of the story. For 700 years, God's people felt abandoned. In fact, that's what verse 3 says. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. But God did keep his promises. Wow, not on our time schedule, right? If I make an appointment on my phone... It's locked in. If we agree to meet for lunch, we'll do it in the next week or two or three or whatever. If I order something, I expect it to be delivered. Maybe the next day or the same day if I pay, right? 700 years, yes. God's timetable is not ours. But Bethlehem is now marked in a new way from what happened 2,000 years ago. If you take a look at this slide, you will see a picture of a church called the Church of the Nativity. It was built in about the year 330 when Constantine, the new emperor who became a Christian, authorized the building of churches, especially right clustered in Jerusalem, three of them, one to mark the birth of Jesus, this one, another to mark the death and resurrection of Jesus, called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and a third one to mark the ascension of Jesus up to heaven. This church, among those three, was never ever destroyed. It was rebuilt, but it's still there to this day. And some of you have been there, and Every day, maybe except during the pandemic, Christians have come to look at this spot underneath the ancient church. They call it a grotto. Christian tradition says that Jesus was born in a cave as part of the manger in the inn. 
a cave. I know it may sound a little odd. So what Constantine and his builders did was to protect the cave because there was a pagan temple built on it before to keep the Christians from worshiping there. And it's, you know, it's not our style, <laughs> but it's protected this church in this special cave and this spot right there, the star you see, that is to cause us to remember the most important entry of an alien into earth ever. But he wasn't an alien. Forget your sci-fi stories. The greatest story is that God became man. Think about this for a minute. That's really the second greatest story. The first greatest story in history is that the invisible God created matter, created physical matter, and he called it very good. From all eternity, God had existed without things and stuff and what we call matter, as far as we know. And the second greatest thing is that the very God who created matter took on matter that he had created. Purely, sinlessly, yes, but indivisibly, Jesus became man forever and ever. That's amazing. God identifies with his creation in a way that had never, ever existed. And the third thing that happened in the life of Jesus was that God reversed the curse that was in matter in Jesus' body. He raised him from death. And at that Easter moment, God begins to roll back the powers of darkness. You see what this promise contains? It's not just a carol, O little town of Bethlehem. It's a powerful signal to the anti-God powers and every human power that God himself is working to reverse the curse. And that Jesus and his lordship is the goal of everything. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus does. Period. And yet, the way God works Jesus' authority is in an upside-down way. He brings the king from Davidsville. He's born in a feeding trough with animals smelling him, dripping their saliva on him or something. What? This is the royal birth? Yes. From the smallest clan comes the greatest king. And so what we learn from our Bibles is that, yes, Jesus is the king. Micah says the king is coming. Yes, but the way the king comes is in an unexpected way. But still, our hope is built in Christ, who was born in Bethlehem, who lived a perfect life, who died for sin, and who rose triumphantly from death. That's why the hymn writer says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the overwhelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's the first thing Micah says. Well, that would be enough for me, but he gives us one more picture that causes us to have hope, and that is not just the Messiah is coming, but the Messiah's kingdom is coming as well. He's coming to do something. Now, let me again just read a few verses here. Verse 4, at the beginning of verse 5, he, this son who will be born, this ruler who's coming, will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace, our shalom. You see, Micah predicts the time when not just the baby will be born in the world, but all the world will recognize the baby who's born and now is the king. This is what the prophets predict, not just Micah, but all of them point to a future that is so great, so much better than what we have now, it's Eden on steroids. It's when there's no, no, no. You can read it in Revelation. There's no more crying, no more tears, no more suffering, no more death. He is our peace. His greatness will be universal. And, and the rest of Micah, um, toward the end there, like verses 10 through 15, involves eliminating evil. I won't read it all, but if you have your Bible, you'll see it kind of goes in a staccato way. Verse 10, in that day, which is prophetic shorthand for in the future, at the end of history, I will destroy, I will destroy, I will destroy your witchcraft, I will destroy your idols, I will uproot your Asherah poles. God, when he comes, when Jesus returns, will bring justice by punishing evil and sinners forever and ever. Justice demands that. You can't just reset everything and say, well, okay. Eh, you were wrong, but that's okay. No, that just speaks, that grates against our sense of justice, and even more, God's sense of justice. So the day of the Lord that's coming is when final justice will come on all people and when eternal peace will come on God's people. This is what Paul calls our blessed hope when faith becomes sight. Now, agreed, we may disagree, right, on the, the details of the events of the chronology of the last days. It's okay to discuss that, but don't divide over that 
And remember that all the views agree that Jesus is coming again. He is our hope. His kingdom will endure. And that's where we're all headed. And if you're not, think about it this morning. Because your life is short and death is sure. Sin is the curse and Christ is the only cure. So, as I stand back now and say, so if Micah is God's prophet, if God's prophet's voice speaks to all of God's people for all time, what is he really saying? Well, let's, let, let's review for a minute. So in Micah's day, if I stand over here, 700 B.C., Micah promised God's people that someday the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And someday, the Messiah's kingdom would be worldwide. Micah didn't date it. Micah didn't know which would come first or how long it would take. What we know is that, sure enough, it took 700 years, and Jesus, the son of David, is born in Bethlehem. But we also know that Jesus' kingdom is not yet fully come on earth. I, this week, uh, talked to my friend who is a rabbi at a nearby synagogue. And I asked him, I said, I'm, I'm going to preach this Sunday from the prophet Micah. He said, oh, you mean Micha? I said, yeah, Micha. <laughs> That's how you say it in Hebrew. And I said, I'd like to know how you understand verse 2 about the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem. I said, first of all, do you believe in a personal Messiah coming? He says, yes, we do. Not all Jewish people do, but yes, we're looking for the Messiah. And I said, of course, he'll be, he won't be God, right? He said, oh, no, he will be a son of David. He will be Davidic, like it says. I said, well, what about the Bethlehem birth here? Because if you know anything about the current politics, Bethlehem is an Arab city. <laughs> There's no Jews living in Bethlehem. That's a problem, right? So he said, well, that doesn't mean that he will be born in Bethlehem. It means that he will come from David's line, and David was born in Bethlehem. Okay. <laughs> Even though the Jews at Jesus' time read it like we're reading it, right? It's a geographical spot. And my friend said, yes, and we hope that when the Messiah comes, the Messianic age will begin when everything will be just and right. And I said, well, you know, don't you, that uh, I believe that Jesus, the Jewish Jesus, fulfills this prophecy, and the Messianic age began when he came the first time, and he's doing a work in his people so that they can be a light to the nations, and then he will return a second time at the end of the age to bring justice to the world. He said, yeah, I understand that. But he said, we both kind of do the same thing. We as Jews believe that we should tikkun olam, we should repair the world so that when the Messiah comes, he will finish the repair operation. I said, okay, well, uh, we believe that as Christians, 
the Messiah has given us a new heart so we can be a light to the nations and we can repair the world. That's a good expression, isn't it? So that's what's happening now. But it's, it's not easy, right? It's rough. So if, if Jesus came for us 2,000 years ago and he's coming again, I don't know when, we're living in between, aren't we? We're living until. Until. Well, that should give us some hope. Because the God who promised in 700 B.C. fulfilled his promise at Jesus' birth, at Christmas. So we can look back with one hand and say, God, you were faithful in that promise, and we believe you will be faithful in that promise as well. We're living until. And today, we need more than ever to learn how to live in the until with, with hope. Because you know that anxiety and depression are at all-time highs. You may feel like what verse 3 says, Israel will be abandoned until. You may feel that. Where is God in my life? Where is God in this world? And it's so easy, isn't it, to lean on short-term fixes, quick fixes. The, the problem is, that's why we call them quick fixes, because they don't last. They don't satisfy. And they actually create false hopes. So you move from one to the other to the other to the other, and it's like a, what do you call that, an escalator that, you know, you keep stepping, but you don't make any, any forward movement. So where's your hope right now? Do you ever think, well, when this is fixed, my life will be okay. <laughs> and you don't have to shake your head, because I know we all think that, right? We're all fixers. We want it to be better. If this, what, what is the this? And you know what I'm going to say next, right? Because... When that thing gets fixed, then two more things will demand your attention of <laughs> being fixed. So, what if, what if your life actually gets worse in the next month through your health or your job or your finances or your kids or your parents or your family? Fill, fill in the this. What if it gets really worse? Now, if, if, if these sorts of questions make you feel uncomfortable, that's good. Because then you have seen that your hope is too closely tied to those things that don't ultimately matter or satisfy. God told the people of Israel that he will destroy those false idols in the coming kingdom. And you know what? He's doing that now with his people. 
He's doing it with me. He's doing it with you. The things that, uh, if only, yeah, God says, am I enough? What if you were living in Ukraine with bombs falling around you? I have a close friend who was a missionary for about 30 years in Ukraine. He just retired last year, living in Indiana, but his uh, Facebook page is loaded with communiques from friends, Christians, in Kyiv, where he was living. Here's a quotation from one email that came uh, two days ago. All bomb shelters are full to hide from bombs. This is life in real time for over two million people in Kyiv. Pray for believers, for safety, and for courage based on hope in Christ. And pray for gospel conversations in the midst of this unfolding crisis. Behind this massive inhumanity is a divine purpose. Judgment will come on unrepentant perpetrators in due time. For now, this is a time to point people to an even greater problem and to one, capital O, who is able to rescue them. So please don't stop praying. When I read that the other day, you know what my problems look like? <laughs> but even more, I'm thinking, would I, if the bombs were falling, have that same sort of move to say, yeah, this is bad, but there's something else going on that's much better. A call to repentance, a call to eternal life. So we need to stop asking, why is this happening? And instead ask, what is God doing? You see, our hope is not circumstantial, it's Christological. You like that word? <laughs> it's all about Jesus. If it's tied to circumstances, we're set up for failure. Our hope should not be, in Micah's terms, breaking the siege, but rather on trusting God's promises during the siege of stress. So Jesus, who is our hope, came from humble Bethlehem. That's the way he lived, right? He was rejected and despised and misunderstood, and yet he was totally at peace with his father, and he was always calling people to life, real life. And so like Jesus, our hope is found not in getting what we want, but in dying to what we want. First Peter 1.13 says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Take the long-term view. We must live our life right now with an eye on our promised future in the struggles of our present. That's a skill. That's not easy to do. This week, 
I heard about one of our members who was out of state visiting a relative. And when they got there, uh, this uh, member had some heart issues. So he was rushed to a hospital and he had to have bypass surgery. You may, some of you know who I'm talking about. When I talked to him, I thought, oh, should I even call or, you know, I texted first. He answers the phone, hello? And he starts telling me, oh yeah, well our plans were interrupted, but you know what, I'm able to witness to these nurses and the doctors, and I don't know what God is up to here, but we're doing fine, surgery is tomorrow. <laughs> so I texted him last night, how are you doing? <laughs> and he starts to tell me, oh great, I found out my, Christ my doctor is a Christian, and I was able to blah, 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 blah. Oh, thank God for the kind of hope in the middle of a, call that a disruption? You think traffic troubles are bad? And then I remembered what one of the early church leaders named Tertullian wrote in about the year 200 AD when Christians were dying. He wrote a document to the Roman authorities. And this is a sentence that you may have heard before too. Listen for the hope in it. He said, the more we are mown down by you, the more we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. That's why the early church took over the Roman world. Because they had a higher calling. Their hope was not in their day-to-day -day activities. Their hope was in Jesus who promised to give them new life one day when he comes back and new life today because he's already here in our hearts. Because what God will do is what God is already doing. May it be so in your life and in mine. Now, Father, we thank you for what you are doing. We don't understand it all, but you haven't called us to that. You have called us to know you, to trust you, to hope in you, and to share your good news wherever we are. So give us strength. Give us more hope. We pray in the name of our King, Jesus, the Messiah. Amen.